Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, I sure am glad I do not have older brothers. Because by the time you get to about brother number three, I'd be worried. And surely come brother number eight, you want to bring that story to an end. You know, one cannot listen to news reports very long today without hearing the labels of progressive, moderate, and conservative. And then the extremes on the outside of that range would include the socialists and the alt-right. Would it surprise you to know that the social structure in Jesus' day was very similar to progressives, moderates, conservatives? The three structures in Jesus' day were Pharisees, Herodians, 
and Sadducees. See, the Pharisees would have been the conservatives. They just wanted everyone to follow the rules. Just do what you're told and everything will be right. The Herodians, on the other hand, did not want to ruffle any feathers. They just wanted to fly under the radar. If you just do what the government tells you to do, everything will be fine, was the Herodians' thought. And the Sadducees, on the other extreme, would have been the liberals of Jesus' day. Because they thought that the grave was the end of the human experience. And since the Sadducees thought the grave was the end of the experience, life was to be filled with as much pleasure as possible. If the only joy you're going to get is in this life, you might as well get as much as you can, because if God is going to get any type of revenge, he's going to do it in this life. And hopefully, your pleasure will outweigh any price that you pay. Because the Sadducees believed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And they believed that the Torah was God's law, and the other 34 books of the Old Testament didn't matter. If this, Jesus had already shut down the Pharisees, when they tried to silence the crowds, as the crowds were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, you are great. You are worthy of our devotion. And the Pharisees said, Jesus, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell them that. And then Jesus really put them in their place when he upended their business dealings in the temple courts. They had a sweetheart deal going, and Jesus said, My house is to be a house of prayer. So with the conservatives already upset with Jesus, the other two sects, the Herodians and the Sadducees, now make a run at Jesus. And by the end of verse 40 this morning, all three will be ready to kill him. At first, I see a failed attempt by the Herodians, from which we get the name Herod. And so you can see the connection. The failed attempt in these first verses is um, that, that they were overvaluing human government. The Herodians were wondering about taxation and when we should comply and when we should resist. And they thought that if these scoundrels believed that the best way to get rid of Jesus was similar to what the satraps did with Daniel in Babylon. They wanted to leverage political rules to eliminate their enemies. In Daniel's day, they tricked the king into outlawing something that they knew that Daniel was already doing every day. And in Jesus' day, these religious zealots tried to flatter Jesus into saying something that they could take to Caesar as evidence of sedition. 
If they could tell Caesar, this man is revolting against your rule, they trusted that the government would take care of Jesus, their enemy. But depending upon power and politics to deal with spiritual realities, it's like taking a knife to a gunfight. We struggle not against flesh and blood. We struggle against spiritual principalities. Yet these Herodians thought that somehow laws and rules and mandates would be able to control the spiritual realm. There are areas where the law is not settled and people like you and like, like me, we need to use our best judgment. And they were trying to leverage Jesus' best judgment in a way that they could accuse him of something that was not true. You know, as I look around us, churches have been fined. Pastors have been imprisoned. Properties have been fenced and chained right here in North America. In regard to social distancing and masks and the number of people in a room and vaccines... There are people who are trying to leverage human rules to squash a spiritual work. And you have heard me appeal to mercy and love towards those who disagree with the conclusions that you have reached. Personally, I chose to get the vaccine just as I do the annual flu vaccine, which I got in this shoulder last Wednesday. I have very close friends within this church family who have used ivermectin. I have very close friends within our church family who have chosen space and social distancing. I have very close friends within this church family who are relying upon supplements to boost their natural immunity. I have very close friends within this church family who have already been through COVID and are trusting their body's response to the virus to generate an immunity against further exposures. See, all of these very close friends of mine fit under the category of matters of conscience. Because no matter how many times you read from Genesis to Maps, you will not find hydroxychloroquine in the pages of this book. You will not find ivermectin, Pfizer, Moderna mentioned in the pages of Scripture. So we can't turn to chapter and verse and say, see, this is what everybody needs to do. It's a matter of conscience. In Jesus' day, the Herodians tried to leverage the power of Rome to intimidate citizens to comply. And today, many are using the fear of crisis 
to impose restrictions on many of the liberties we have come to enjoy in our country. In the upcoming months, these impositions will only get stronger as the free choice to remain in the military, to keep one's job, to board an airplane, to attend school, will increasingly fall under mandates by government and employers. So then, how do responsible, patriotic believers in Jesus Christ respond to these challenges? The rest of this sermon is going to have a lot of scripture. So I hope you have a pen. I hope you have the sermon guide in front of you. If not, get it out because I encourage you to write down the references that I am about to give you. Look them up prayerfully consider God's wisdom as you exercise the matters of your conscience. Because I can guarantee you that neither Fox nor CNN will provide these references for you. And so I encourage you to get into God's word as you set the direction of your conscience. Here are the principles that we need to consider. And something that the scripture does not intend, does not explicitly tell us. The first principle is we need to avoid legalism. We need to avoid being pushed into a set of man-made rules that are more restrictive than what God intends. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says, Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants to God. We can't be forced into man-made rules that are more restrictive than what God intends. Because God says, live as people who are free. The entire book of Galatians was written to impress upon a church not to surrender their freedom and yield to a list of unreasonable rules. We need to avoid legalism. Secondly, we need to avoid licentiousness. And yes, the spell checker corrected me the first time I tried to spell licentious. Licentious is a $5 word that simply means I'm going to do whatever I want and you can't stop me. And we need to avoid that attitude. Because in the very book where Paul rejects submitting to man-made rules, he also warns about being a jerk. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we need to avoid being pushed into a set of man-made rules. We need to avoid being a jerk in the way that we exercise our freedom because we do have a responsibility to those who are around us. We do have an obligation of love to serve one another. But the third principle that we need to keep in mind in any of these gray matters, in any of these matters of conscience, is to exercise your freedom 
responsibly or to exercise your freedom with responsibility. For we read in Romans chapter 14, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. That's a fancy way of saying, keep your conscience clean. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned. For if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Three simple principles I see in in these verses. Number one, think about the consequences of your decision on other people. If you choose to sneeze and cough all over somebody else, think about what that's going to do to that person. Secondly, pursue a clear conscience with your decisions. If your conscience tells you to get vaccinated, then get vaccinated. If your conscience tells you not to get vaccinated, then don't get vaccinated. If your conscience tells you to wear a mask, then wear a mask. If your conscience tells you to stay six feet away from other people, stay six feet away from other people. Pursue a clear conscience so that you do not speak judgment on yourself for violating your conscience. And thirdly, it is faith. The righteous shall live by faith, not by fear, not by arrogance and pride. We live by faith. Because faith is to shape our decisions, not fear and not intimidation of others. I see in verses 24 through 25 of Luke's gospel, chapter 20, that although there was a government authority who deserved to get the coins, Jesus says there's an even higher authority than the government. See, Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13 teaches that unless there is sin at stake, we should generally be those who obey our leaders. Unless it's a matter of sin, generally we should obey. Because Romans tells us, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't go bullying and trying to pick a fight. If you can get along with people, do it. And there are consequences if we break the law. Because the law enforcement officer is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For the law enforcement officer does not bear the sword or the sidearm or the baton or the ticket book in vain. Because he or she is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoing. God doesn't like wrongdoers. And God has instituted human authority to squash wrongdoing. Notice I see here, Jesus does not say that government is the only authority. 
He says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but God has even more authority because God is the source of the government's authority. So we must render to God the things that are God's. Now, I just said that the law enforcement officer bears a baton, a ticket book, a sidearm for a reason. But you may not be forced to give an account to the government. But as sure as you're sitting here right now, you will give an account to God. See, there are so many millions of people in millions of circumstances that it is possible you may not get caught or penalized for resisting various mandates. I have read those who claim that a Christian should not claim a religious objection to any quote-unquote health mandate. But, if you are genuinely convinced that compliance with any mandate is poor stewardship of the one body that God has entrusted to you, you have an obligation to obey God. Even if man imposes consequences on your decision. Because Romans 14 says, So then each of us will, read with me, give an account of himself to God. 1 Peter chapter 4. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And Matthew says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you are convinced that one of the vaccines is safe or even beneficial, there is nothing wrong with rendering to Caesar and complying. If you are convinced that any or all of the vaccines have reasonable potential to harm the body that God has entrusted to you, you have an obligation to honor God above any other authority. My decision may not be your decision. And your thoughts may not be my thoughts. But the beauty of matters of conscience is that you won't have to give an account for my obedience. You won't have to give an account for the decisions that I believe the Lord has led me to make. And you know what? Besides my pastoral leadership, I won't have to give an account for your decisions either. See, these are matters of conscience. Where the Bible is silent... We each must seek the scriptures, realize that God has given each of us one body. We will give an account for the deeds in this body. So you have a responsibility to choose to do that which honors God. Now, in the next group of verses, we see the danger of only looking at part of the scripture and making short-sighted solutions. Because in verses 27 through 40, we have a failed attempt by the Sadducees. The Pharisees tried to silence Jesus. He says, 
if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. The Herodians have now tried to um, trip up Jesus, and he showed himself smarter than them. He said it's a matter of conscience, folks. And now we see that third group, the Sadducees. Well, who are the Sadducees? And I know I've got to say it. I know you've heard it before. The Sadducees are always sad, you see, because they do not believe that there is an afterlife. They do not believe in the resurrection. All right, now that that pun is out of the way. See, the the Sadducees believed the Torah. They believed the five books of Moses, but they only believed the Torah. Anything mentioned in the Torah was not up for debate, and anything not mentioned in the Torah was free game. And they liked to poke fun at those who had beliefs based upon the other 34 books of our Old Testament. See, they concluded, and it makes a certain amount of sense, that the life after death is not mentioned between Genesis and Deuteronomy. So it must not exist. If Moses didn't write about it, if God didn't tell Moses to write about it, it must not be there. And if there is no afterlife, then there's no fear of a future judgment. Any revenge that God is going to get, he's going to get this side of the grave. That was their mindset. And they drew faulty conclusions from their inadequate, narrow reading of truth. Verses 28 through 33 show us that they start by laying a case before Jesus based upon something that absolutely was in the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, tells us that if a woman die, or if a man dies and his wife has not born a child, the man's brother is to marry her and give her a son in her brother's name. That was, it, it's very clear, Deuteronomy 25.5. So they believe that. They believe that that must be obeyed. Then they reason, since we know that each brother is obligated to have relations with this woman, if you say there is an afterlife, which we know there isn't, it kind of creates a bizarre dilemma. And so they present the dilemma to Jesus, and Jesus then clears up their misunderstanding. Jesus starts by saying in verse 34 that marriage is a good thing. He says the people of this life marry and are given in marriage. Marriage is a good thing. As a matter of fact, marriage is to be honored by all. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. And because all of us should honor the institution of marriage, there's nothing wrong with getting married in this life. He goes on to say, based on Genesis, what you believe Moses wrote, being prompted by God, is that marriage is the gift of partnership. It's not good for man to be alone. And so, since it's not good for man to be alone, because men will get into all sorts of messes without a good woman, won't we? 
Since it's not good for us to be alone, God has provided a partner, a helper, a companion for our life. And it goes on to say in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God created male and female, the very first command is have relations, be fruitful, multiply. Marriage is a good thing because we need partners and we need to reproduce and procreate. But in the shadow of marriage on earth being a good thing, Jesus goes on to say in verses 35 and 36 that our earthly covenants do not bind eternal relationships. I I think any of us who said the traditional wedding vows, remember there's a phrase in there about till death do you part. In other words, death is the end of the covenant. And Jesus goes on to say, he says, you Sadducees, you've got this all wrong. Because in the resurrection, in the life to come, humans become like, underline, highlight that word, like the angels. Humans don't become angels. We become like the angels. And how is an afterlife human like the angels? Well, first of all, angels don't die. Once an angel is created, they're there for eternity. And once we get to heaven or hell, if we have rejected Christ, we're also eternal. There's no end. And since angels don't die, they don't need to be replaced. So angels don't procreate. Secondly, How are humans like the angels? Angels are in the very presence of God. So they don't need companionship from a spouse. God is their companion. When we cross over, we won't die. When we cross over, we won't come to an end, so there'll be no need to replace us with another generation. Since we don't need to reproduce, and since our desire for companionship will be satisfied by God himself, we become like the angels. And so the human covenant, which is good and given for a very good reason, is not necessary in heaven. Because we see places in the scripture how our earthly experiences are simply a picture of a greater reality in heaven. For example, the temple on earth was a picture of an eternal reality, which we see in Revelation 21. John says, I saw no temple in the new city because its temple is the Lord God. The whole reason he gave a temple on earth was to point to the intercessory role of God himself, the Almighty and the Lamb. Marriage also is a picture. Marriage is a picture of an eternal reality. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now notice verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that 
it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage, no matter how good or bad it may be, is meant to be a picture of Christ's unending love for his bride, the church. And our union is meant to be a picture of God's love for us. As a matter of fact, our Mormon and our Muslim friends do not believe what Jesus said here. See, Mormons believe in something called celestial marriage. They believe that marriage goes on. And so they would disagree with Jesus himself who said, once we cross over, we don't need the companionship, we don't need to procreate, so marriage is not necessary. Now, just because I said marriage is not necessary in the afterlife, I did not say that your relationship with your spouse ends. Because most, if not all of us, had a relationship with our spouse before we entered into covenant with our spouse. And so even if the covenant comes to end, until death do you part, the relationship that was already there will even continue further. So I believe that we will have relationship with our spouse in eternity, but it will not be the covenant marriage relationship that happens on earth. See, that's where the Mormons miss. The Muslims think that the highest form of exaltation is to get your 72 virgins and have relations for all eternity. Because they don't believe in being in the presence of God and God himself being our companion. Then Jesus explains in verse 37 that God is the God of the living. See, the Sadducees didn't see the afterlife in the book of Moses. So Jesus showed them from the very burning bush incident, Exodus chapter 3, that after the patriarchs were dead and buried, God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, I am. In Exodus itself, in the Pentateuch, God speaks of the patriarchs as they are, not they were. And since they are, and since God is, then their own scriptures teach the doctrine of the afterlife. They didn't see it, they didn't believe it, but Jesus said, if you look at the book, listen to the verbs, it's right there. Now, people squabbling with Jesus may not seem real relevant to Chase County 2021. So let me highlight three things that you can take from these verses we've been looking at this morning. The first is, we need to keep God in his rightful place. Government is not greater than God. Amen? We should be patriotic. We should live peaceably with those who are around us, but God's truth takes precedence. Keep God in his rightful place. Secondly, the Sadducees denied that there was an afterlife, but we need to be prepared for eternity. 
We need to live on this side of the grave in an awareness that there is a that side of the grave. My friend, you need to be prepared. And thirdly, we need to listen to all of God's word. We need to know what it all says. Not just pick one favorite verse and say, see, that's what it says. We need to read the whole book. We need to learn from all of it. See, the the Herodians thought that Caesar had clout. But Jesus said, God is a higher authority. The Sadducees thought this life was the end. But Jesus said, heaven is a higher place. And we each have attained to a certain level of understanding, but the Spirit this morning says that we should keep pressing towards a higher maturity. Our final song this morning is going to be a toe-tapper that encourages us to keep pressing higher. Keep God in His rightful place Prepare for a higher eternity and keep in the until eternity, keep learning more and pressing towards a higher maturity. I invite you to stand with me as we celebrate our pilgrimage towards higher ground.